Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, November 17th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today. And today's episode is going to be a very different show where we just cover some of the major things that you'll need to know before COP28 begins on November 30th. Hopefully shorter than a normal Friday episode, so let's get right into it. into things. Today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta, and we have a new affiliate link that you should go try out right now. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials, historic craftsmanship, and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co slash tpt for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash tpt. I was actually hiking this weekend with Nick, with our friend Dan, who's the founder of Val Alta, and I had two on me at all times. They're great. Go check them out. All right, let's get into things. First, I'm going to give a very brief summary of each of these discussions, treaties, negotiations. Um, This episode isn't meant to make you an expert on these topics, but it'll really just get you familiar with some of the international climate agreements, what their accomplishments are, what their shortcomings were. And the first one I want to start with is the Montreal Protocol. This was signed on September 16th, 1987, and came into effect January 1st, 1989. This one sought to phase out chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were a group of pollutants that were destroying the ozone layer. Ozone is a layer of the Earth's atmosphere that absorbs UV light from the sun, and CFCs were found in aerosols, refrigerants, and other household items. The banning of these substances was considered a great success, with only 14 years passing between the initial discovery in 1973 that the ozone was being depleted by the use of CFCs, and the international agreement coming into effect. Since signing, the ozone layer has gradually recovered and is actually projected to fully recover shortly after 2040. The Kyoto Protocol was signed 10 years later on December 11th, 1997, and came into effect on February 16th, 2005. Kyoto is a more interesting one to discuss because there's a lot more we can get into as far as what it did well, what it did poorly, But basically, Kyoto commits state parties to reduce greenhouse gas emissions based on the scientific consensus that global warming is occurring and that human-made carbon dioxide emissions are driving it. The treaty applies to carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, hydrofluorocarbons, which are different than the chlorofluorocarbons that we talked about with Montreal, parafluorocarbons, sulfur, hexafluoride, and nitrogen trifluoride. All of that is just a big group of essentially things we can think of as greenhouse gases. This treaty was complicated in that it had binding targets across different time periods. 
and an expiration date of either 2012 for the first commitment or 2020 for the second commitment. Where Kyoto is successful is causing 36 developed nations to reduce their emissions. Unfortunately, global emissions have increased overall after ratifying this treaty. The United States was the only signatory of Kyoto that did not ratify the treaty. And where I say this one is complex, you have what are called Annex B countries and non-Annex B countries. And it was basically just different requirements for different parties supposed to be based on historical emissions, supposed to be based on how much each country has contributed to climate change. And this was all based on whether you are a developed or developing country. Um, Non-Annex B parties that didn't have any binding commitments, most of South Asia, most of Africa, all of South America. Annex B parties that had binding targets in the first period would be Russia and Greenland. Um, Binding targets in the second period, Australia. So all this is to say there's a lot going on with a lot of different requirements. And I, I think that's one of the major shortcomings for Kyoto is that it made it kind of hard to keep up with on the international stage. I now want to get into the Conference of Parties or COP series of climate negotiations We're going to focus more on the more recent COPs, but I feel like we can't do this without at least discussing COP1, which took place in Berlin between March 28th, 1995 and April 7th, 1995. This voiced concerns from the international community that we would not be able to meet made under two organizations, the Body for Scientific and Technological Advice and the Subsidiary Body for Implementation. COP1's big major accomplishment was getting the first joint measures in international climate action mandated. You know, that first thing that sets the stage saying, this negotiation is something that we're going to do every year and we're going to have to keep going back to the drawing board, which is good because climate science is constantly evolving. So our treaties, our negotiations need to be constantly adapting to those times. So fast forward 20 years, we have COP21 in Paris, where the Paris Agreement was signed. This was considered a landmark agreement, which was necessary due to the increasing impacts of climate change and the world's lack of action up until that point. For the first time, all nations agreed to combat climate change and to help each other adapt to its effects. Paris even called for better assistance to developing nations in their efforts to mitigate and to adapt to climate change, which was a huge, huge development. The key goal for Paris was to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and that's going to be measured sometime around 1900 to 1910. The final agreement called for keeping this number below two degrees while pursuing efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And that was kind of a major concession by the negotiators to essentially get richer countries to to sign on, to agree, because it was going to take more for them to sign on because they have the most at stake here by switching over to a new system, a new non-fossil fuel economy, you know, that is the type of system that got the US, the UK, et cetera, very rich and very influential. So to hold them accountable means to kind of peel that back and to contribute to funds that will help developing nations get closer to where we are without enjoying the same successes of fossil fuels, without making the same mistakes of using fossil fuels. Paris called for nationally determined contributions or NDCs where each country would say what they could reasonably do to mitigate climate change and reduce their emissions in the form of a pledge. 
And the, the issue here is that these pledges are not legally binding. Some of the wealthier nations in the world fought to make sure they were not legally binding. Instead, what we kind of fell into is this name and shame policy of saying, hey, here's what we're going to do. And if you don't reach them, other countries can start guilting you or treating you more harshly. It's not something where we're required to reach our goals. They're, they're just that. They're goals. They're not promises. They're not guarantees. And guarantees can be risky because what happens if you don't reach them? But without that threat of not reaching what you've guaranteed, it makes it a lot easier to fall back on your goals or, or to fail. And I would say it was a failure on the U.S. part when former President Trump famously pulled out of the Paris Agreement, which was among several other dumb decisions he made that we don't have to get into from an environmental standpoint. Let's jump ahead again to COP26. This was the first COP that we covered here on TPT, and it took place in Glasgow from October 31st to November 13th, 2021. The main takeaway here was the agreement to increase resiliency efforts, curb greenhouse gas emissions, and provide financing to developing nations for both of those items. The signing parties said they would provide $100 billion annually to help with climate adaptation, but so far, this has been underfunded. The countries also agreed to work towards reducing emissions, phasing down coal usage and fossil fuel subsidies, and to focus on the 1.5 degree goal instead of 2.0. This treaty, I remember when we talked about it, it really just seemed like a setup chapter, you know, a filler episode in the, in the COP series, which we can't afford. And I remember being really disappointed at the time that, you know, time is kind of not running out, but it's getting really close. And to see that we wasted this giant global stage and wasted the opportunity to come away with some hard work and some tough decisions. And instead we just kind of set up for, you know, next year we're going to come back and we're going to do this the right way. I was skeptical. I was nervous. And ultimately COP27 improved on, on some of COP26, but this was, this was a little disappointing for me. And to get into COP27 a bit more, it took place last year in Egypt and we finally saw a loss and damage fund for developing nations. But at the time, the fund was not set up and it wasn't contributed to. The commitment to phase down coal was finally agreed to last year after the previous year's agreement to work towards facing it down. And it also contained a measure to boost, quote, low emissions energy. Low emissions energy is vague and it was purposely left vague basically so that the world could continue to profit off of gas and oil in either development or exporting. Oil and gas are more environmentally friendly than coal. That's an unfortunate fact here. And I say unfortunate because low emissions energy could mean lower than coal. It doesn't have to mean solar, which right now is not carbon-free. It's a low emissions energy because development requires using energy. And our energy system is very reliant on fossil fuels. So you could make a case and say, no, low emissions means include the life cycle, include the production. That's not what the case was here. This, this was so that oil and gas could continue to be used without phasing it out entirely. This agreement focused more on adaptation, focusing on flood resilience, preserving wetlands, and regrowing forests. Although loss and damage funding was a major accomplishment, COP27 was again pretty underwhelming in my opinion and seemingly most analysts' opinions. 
So I'm hoping the COP28 at the end of this month is a more sweeping, legally binding contract. So to get into COP28, pre-sessionals are going to take place from November 24th to November 29th, and the actual conference of parties is going to take place from November 30th to December 12th. It's going to be hosted by the United Arab Emirates. Some major goals for the conference are answering some of the questions related to loss and damages. Who is paying for the fund? Who is eligible to receive that funding? Another issue that needs an answer is how to mobilize the $100 billion adaptation fund, which was set up at COP15 in 2009. As of 2020, the fund was around $17 billion in funding short of that $100 billion goal. This year presents an opportunity for the parties to agree on a global goal for adaptation, but mitigation also needs to be a top priority because the window to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is almost entirely closed at this point. That sucks, that is scary, that is daunting, but it's a fact we need to address here. So hopefully this episode was all helpful and you're feeling a little bit more informed going into this conference in a few weeks. If not, go check out some of the links in your show notes to read more. We are going to cover COP28 on our December 15th episode since it'll be right after the conference closes. For now, let's close this show with this week's environmental policy roundup. Michigan State Legislature passed a series of bills, including one that requires the state's utilities to reach 100% carbon-free energy by 2040. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is expected to sign the bills, which backers argue will fight climate change and reduce energy costs for disadvantaged communities and the state as a whole. And this next story isn't environmental policy focused necessarily, but a new study found that climate change may trigger changes in predatory behavior. Cheetahs have been shifting their schedules to hunt more in dawn and in dusk due to hotter daytime temperatures. This means that cheetahs' hunting hours overlap more with their competition, so lions and leopards, and it increased by 16%. This would make it harder for cheetahs to eat their prey as they'll interact more with larger predators. I say not necessarily environmental policy focused because this is a wildlife conservation story, but wildlife conservation requires policy solutions you know, and, and support from governments. So not necessarily the policy route, but something worth bringing up. As always, those stories are in your show notes if you want to read for more detail, but that is going to do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for our annual Thanksgiving, the state of the planet today show, where we let you know what we have planned for 2024 and kind of do a little debrief on 2023. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chaduce produced our show and makes all the music you hear throughout it. You can hear his songs at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to our U.S.-based listeners, and we will see you right here next Friday.